We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of things when it comes to what we put into our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration for what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor's memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fauna. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. In the words of Incredibles fashion mogul Edna Mode, I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. This is what flavor forecasting is all about, using buzz phrases like what's new and what's now, while charting trends in flavor via the traditional facts and figures, or the more unpredictable social media. Keep an ear out for the new buzz phrases as we discuss the 23rd edition of Flavor Forecasting. Once again, we're joined by Veronica Collins, Senior Global Content and Communications Manager and newcomer to the podcast, Senior Associate Product Manager, Carrie Rock. Hello there. Hi. Hey, loved that intro. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote it myself. I'm a big boy. (laughs) Um, <laughs> so thanks guys for coming back to the podcast. We've done a number of flavor forecasting. It's it's that time of year. We're going to be talking, I mean, about what's coming up, what's new, what's relevant, what's exciting because, you know, when you guys talk to us about new and innovative things, we always get really excited about what's next. You know, having previewed a little bit of what's going on today, I mean, there's some quote unquote hot topics. Um, Yes, for those of you who are listening, I just winked because, you know, we're going to be talking about some spicy foods today, which I do absolutely love. But before we get into all that, of course, we have to start with our usual. And let's talk about who you guys are, where you came from and how you got here. So, Veronica, since you're the veteran at this, let's show Carrie how it's done, if you wouldn't mind starting for us. (laughs) I would love to. So I am Veronica Collins. I'm based in our McCormick headquarters here in Hunt Valley, Maryland. I think this podcast comes out in February, so come then. I will have been at McCormick for five years, which is really exciting. And as part of my role, I lead our flavor forecast, so our 23rd edition that we'll be chatting about today. This is my fourth year, or my fourth report um, leading, so really exciting stuff. And again, Veronica, how did you come to be at McCormick? What's your background for us? Yeah, so I actually studied art in college, so a very creative brain, problem solver, if you will. And I have a marketing background um, in graphic design, and I was working in a marketing agency just before McCormick. And actually what caught my eye was there was a social media role with Old Bay and being a Baltimore native, when I saw that posted online, I was like, I need to do that. And uh, that's how I started at McCormick. Awesome. I I find it hard. I'm a very creative person myself, and this is one of my only creative outlets that I get to do, (laughs) uh, thanks to Sarah and her, her team. Because uh, most of the time I'm stuck in the IT room, you know, looking at, you know, IP addresses and whatnot. But that's neither here nor there. So glad you bring your creative side to us. But let's go over to Carrie. And Carrie, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do and how you do it and how you got here. Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie Rock, and I am located in our Baltimore, Maryland headquarters office, uh, just like Veronica, right down the hall. Um, And I specialize in macro trends and consumer insights. So I get the luxury of getting to really dig into what's going on in food and have the opportunity to explore these new flavors on a daily basis. Uh, On the day to day, you can catch me talking with our customers and our internal partners about 
food trend so that we can figure out what is the next big trend and flavor and what flavors we should be bringing to consumers. As a part of that, I get to go out into the industry and really learn from all of the the different data sources that we have, but I also get to go out into the field and explore at restaurants and food trucks. That's one of my favorite places to explore food trends and also go along and look at social media and explore some of those trends as well. Awesome. I, you know, everybody I've talked to on this podcast, their favorite thing to do, and, and Carrie, I'm glad that you're kind of a, not an exception to the rule, is just go out and eat. I mean, to go out to different places and, and the, everybody's like, I'm always that person at the table that, you know, everybody's like, you know, stop talking about the food and just eat. But you know what? You guys can come to dinner with me anytime you want um, because I'm the same way. So let's, let's dig into this. Let's talk about Flavor Forecast, the 23rd edition. What is this? How do you guys put it together? What's the process in creating this? I can kick that off. Maybe with just some background on what the Flavor Forecast is, as I mentioned, this is our 23rd year, which means we launched our first ever Flavor Forecast back in the year 2000. So it's before social media, before Facebook. We've been exploring what's next in flavor for 23 years, and it's been an evolving process. But consistently, there's been essentially three points of differentiation. We know that there's a ton of different trend reports within our industry. I think that the first is when you look at every flavor forecast report, you're going to find global flavors and you're going to find a range of flavors on the adoption curve. And that's because the way that we put our report together, it's to drive innovation globally for all of the McCormick businesses. So you're going to find global flavors that feel closer in, a little bit more digestible for today's consumer, but then also further out for a, um, a timeline that's maybe more appropriate or, or tangible for product development innovation pipeline. So that's the first piece. The second piece is definitely my favorite. So echoing that whole idea that a lot of us like to go out and eat is about the way that we go about our trend spotting process. And the approach that we take is both qualitative and quantitative. So we lean both on what's culturally, culturally relevant for today, but also we look at the hard data. So we have a team of over 50 McCormick team members from across the globe, 12 different countries and counting. So we pair that passionate insight of what our different McCormick team members are seeing and tasting around the globe, and we pair that with proprietary consumer insights internally. So forever keeping a pulse on how consumers' mindsets are changing, what they're asking for. And then finally, the third different differentiation, if you will, for, for the flavor forecast is, of course, we look at flavors. But we go beyond just singular flavors on our forecast. So when you look at our report year over year, you're going to see food stories. You're going to see different culinary techniques or cooking applications because ultimately we're looking at everything that's going to be impacting the entire eating and drinking experience. So, of course, flavor is very integral to that. But you're also going to see things like cooking techniques and food stories that dig a bit deeper than just your traditional flavors. And I think one of my favorite parts of flavor forecast and the this dichotomy we have between these close-in and far-out flavors is that, of course, we can lean on those close-in flavors for our customers, but we can also have a lot of fun by taking those far-out flavors and saying, how can we make this close-in? Um, I love taking those flavors that we're like, how, how like, who are we going to get to eat this? This seems kind of funky. And then finding ways to make that work for the general audience. 
And real quickly, Carrie, do you have a flavor story like that? Like one where it started out really far-fetched, but you found or you know of somebody who was like, yeah, I'll do it. It's not from our current edition, but my personal favorite is the 21st edition. We covered the sea. We covered all things ocean, ocean botanicals, sea spaghetti, spirulina, you name it. If it came from the sea, we chatted about it. And we had to figure out how do we make that relevant for our customers that don't necessarily want to have something that's going to be only for that niche foodie consumer? How do we make it relevant for the mass appeal? So we actually had to to really look at what elements of the sea would work in a mass appeal. And we found that we could use that salty, briny flavor without actually calling it out. That we could take things like salt water or ocean, deep sea ocean water, and add that to things like pasta. And now you have a richer, fuller flavor that is really going to be a little bit more unique and have that depth to it without really polarizing people. And we took that concept of what you would do to pasta and we applied it to chicken. So we did a super salty, brined, deep sea ocean buttermilk chicken, and it was super delicious. I mean, chef's tip number one when you're making pasta is salt the water. I mean, let's skip the step and just get the water, right? Gosh, for for somebody who moved from, you know, the East Coast to landlocked Illinois, hearing anything innovative about seafood always makes me very interested. But let's, I know you guys haven't been doing this, obviously, for 23 years, but what changes have you seen in just the time you've been here in, in the 21st to say the 23rd edition? I mean, there's definitely been a lot of change. And I always like to go back and look at some of the iconic flavors that we forecasted, because forecasting flavor is not totally different than forecasting, let's say, fashion trends. Things come back into fashion all the time. Some things are very favorable, while some are not, such as low-rise jeans, if you will. But I think it's really fun to look back at some of the iconic flavors, but also some of the flops, right? But I think looking back at 2003, we forecasted Chipotle, right? That was one of our first big heat sources, but I'm pretty sure at that time I was pronouncing it Chipotle, like didn't, didn't understand how to pronounce it, right? In 2010, we forecasted pumpkin pie spice. And between now and then, I don't want to know how many pumpkin spice lattes that I have enjoyed. 2012, Korean barbecue, always looking at what is next in spicy, what's next in global fare, and also fusion flavors. And then Carrie, you just brought up underwater botanicals, which is one of my absolute favorite trends that we've been able to forecast on the report, because it's kind of that next spin on you know, as we we see plant-based and sustainability really growing in popularity and evolving within within the industry, those underwater botanical flavors, things like kelp spirulina are really taking storm. I'm still obsessed with nori on yes. cheese fries. <laughs> uh, I want more of those and I think about them so frequently from that report. <laughs> wow, nori cheese fries? Yes, please. I, I, I can't even like, what does that taste like? What is that? What is the combination that, that gets brought out in that flavor? It definitely brings out the umami. Um, I would say that it just really gives the cheese fries this like salty umami depth that they, I just never really realized were lacking from cheese fries. I don't think you'd even have to add salt to the fries if you added that nori, just because it really does create such umami richness. Now, these trends that we're talking about, are these, I mean, these are overarching trends, correct? Are these, are these just, you know, they're not very specific. They're not niche, right? 
Can you unpack that question? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So basically uh, what I'm asking, these trends that we're, that we're mentioning, yeah. what, can we, what can we label these as? What kind of overarching trends can we label these as? I would say that consumers want full flavor. I just see this over and over again, that consumers don't want something that's just sweet or just salty. They want it all, and they want it all in the same dish. Uh, I think that's a, a common theme between all of our reports and one that I have had a lot of fun exploring, especially in the 23rd edition, as we've gotten to explore that with flavors that I, I'll be honest, I personally had vilified, but really learned to love as we explored things like full fat. Now, before we move on to like our top trends now, I have to talk about this because I love technology and I've seen a little bit of this virtual reality and augmented reality in product innovation. Where's that going? Where have you seen this? I mean, please talk about that for me if you would. <laughs> Corey, have you been anywhere in the metaverse? Uh, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> the augmented reality, virtual reality, and then this new world of the metaverse Flavor has a place to play in all of them, whether it's within product innovation or menu innovation. And it's definitely something that we are keeping track of on the flavor forecast as, as our team globally. I can tell you that just within our food safaris that we had last year, we had teammates from around the globe. I still remember one of our teammates down in South Africa. She came back and she showed us this incredible restaurant that she went to where it was all virtual reality, a part of every single dish. It is up and coming and it is definitely here to stay. I would say the analogy that, we, that we've been using internally is think back 10, 15 years ago when everybody was saying, why would anybody want to be posting their thoughts all throughout the day on any sort of social media platform and cue Twitter, which is one of the biggest platforms that has been around for over a decade, right? So this is definitely something that we see as scratching the surface, but definitely here, here to stay and grow. And I actually had the pleasure of visiting a restaurant slash bar uh, during our discovery play, discovery phase for our flavor forecast, where they actually combined virtual reality with food and beverage, which was super cool to see how that came to play, where we had our phones and you would look through your phone at the beverages and they would come to life and how we see this in real life, but also in the virtual life too, that we're, we're getting into the metaverse space, which is a lot of fun to bring food to the VR, but people are also bringing VR to food. Now, what I've seen, and this is, you know, simple little whatever, but it's cartoon related and it's, you sit down in this restaurant, you put on this little headset, you know, it looks like anything that, you know, Sony or Xbox would put out and you watch as this little chef walks onto your table and like, you know, starts to prepare the food in front of you and, and it looks like a cartoon. And then like you take the headset off and there's the food. And I saw that and I was just like, you know, why don't you just combine everything I love into one place? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So thank you for that. I, I was really interested to hear about, you know, those, those innovations because uh, I can't wait to have any kind of augmented reality like dinner or lunch or whatever. Before this, I mean, I can just remember the most augmented reality was, you know, they served you in complete darkness and had blind waiters, you know, bring the food out. And that was augmenting your reality. But this is a new, new level, new step. So let's talk about the future. Let's talk about top trends moving forward. What, what are we looking at in the future here? So I think that a nice little segue from this conversation about augmented reality, virtual reality is actually let's chat some of the macro drivers of change that we were seeing before we even dig into the big flavor trends on our 23rd edition. 
our discovery process kind of came out with four different macro drivers of change, if you will. One of them was that we're seeing consumers looking for other sensory experiences while they're eating or drinking, right? So we're seeing metaverse, AR, VR pop up within product innovation and menu innovation. Another one of these macro drivers is that we're experiencing that consumers are returning to a playfulness with food. But with that, they're also not so intimidated with elevated techniques. So they're experimenting more at home or they're willing to buy products that that have a little bit more of an elevated technique or name associated with them. And then finally, our last macro driver, something that I do not think that we can ignore or or that any of us are ignoring is just that consumers are truly embracing frugality um, within their home kitchens for the days ahead. And so those four macro drivers of change were really the big overarching umbrellas of what's happening within our world that's ultimately going to be impacting the eating and drinking experience. So with that, we had three trends this year that I think Carrie and I would love to kind of dig through. And so we have full flavored fats. We have everyday French, which is just personally one of my favorite trends that we've done. And then our last trend is called Beyond Heat. Now, before we kind of move into those, I want to talk about return to playfulness with food. Now, you're not talking about like food fights at the table or, you know, that that scene in Hook where all the kids just start, you know, winging pretend food at each other. What are we talking about when we say playfulness with food? (laughs) No, I think that's a great question. And we're not we're not promoting food fights, although they are totally fun. But we're (laughs) we're looking at things where foods and flavors such as fats, they're no longer being demonized. They're actually being brought into daily diets or daily meals in playful ways that are going to make eating and also cooking at home just more enjoyable and an activity that you might want to do on your own or also with family members. I think it's this whole idea of moderation, uh, just in the idea of not vilifying things like fat. It's 100% okay to have foods that have fat in them just in moderation. And a lot of consumers are getting really excited about that. And they're having a lot of fun with it because they can look forward to eating those foods rather than saying, oh man, well, this is going to help me with my diet, but really doesn't taste all that great. There, A lot of consumers are embracing this idea of eating just a smaller portion of something that tastes fantastic. You know, and as as many of us are trying to stick with our New Year's resolutions of weight loss, it's it's always great to be reminded that, you know, fat is not always the enemy. You, you can eat some of those foods, like Carrie said, in moderation. But let's, let's dive into full flavor fats. What, what are those? I mean, I thought all fat was fully flavored. <laughs> well, I think just to piggyback off a little bit of what Carrie was saying, fats are no longer being vilified. They're no longer demonized. What consumers, and I think all of us are really realizing, is that it's things like sodium and sugar that need to be more regulated in the day-to-day, right? And so fat is making a little bit of a comeback, especially when it's when it's in that moderation. And it's also an affordable kind of aspect of way to bring flavor to meals. It's also a flavor extender. So we have essentially three trends within our full flavored fat trend. The first is what we call butter elevated. So think about when you go into a restaurant and you get the table service butter at the very beginning, what we're seeing is that operators bringing forward more innovative, trendy compound butters to the table. It's going to draw patrons in and drive a little bit of excitement. So things like Vietnamese Cajun compound butter or Old Bay brown butter, for instance, 
Um, the second kind of pillar of full flavored fats is not your average plant butter. And as I believe I mentioned a little bit earlier, we're constantly looking at what's next in plant-based. And so you'll see some, some consistencies throughout this year's forecast as well. And as we look at not your average plant butter, we're seeing a rise in the macadamia nut butter market. We're seeing things like pea protein butters rising, avocado creams, coconut creams really taking storm. And then finally, this whole story around marine and animal fats. So most notably, we're seeing duck fat flavor just booming across menus, across product innovation. But along with that, we're seeing other more obscure animal or, or marine animal fats kind of popping up, a little bit of a sustainability messaging behind that as well. But again, a really impactful full flavored fat flavor for both products and menus. And when we're talking about butter here, it is not just butter boards or a stick of butter here. I mean, that, those are definitely trends we're seeing. We are seeing consumers loving hashtag butter talk, but it is not just that, that butter in that form. We're talking about butter also being used as an ingredient. Things like if you are developing a product, making sure that you have the correct butter flavor in your cracker or your sauce and that you're using that brown butter flavor if it would serve the dish correctly. Or maybe you change it up and don't go for that typical dairy butter, but substitute in something like a plant-based butter. Why not give that cashew butter a try? There's also all of these different flavors that you could add to the butter. If you're, um, I'm just going to use crackers as an example because I, I love uh, cheese and crackers, one of my favorite snacks. There's so much exploration you can do there with these different compound butters and the things like pesto butter and taking that culinary concept and translating it into all of these other applications that you can use in these different forms, whether it's sauces or crackers or even some of the savory bakery items. We've seen a lot of fun use of butter. I mean, incredible. It sounds like people are starting to infuse butter like we used to infuse oils to put with our food. And butter boards are probably one of the more exciting things that I've heard of, you know, other than the butter sculptures I see every year at the state fair. And, and I'm sorry to go down this path with you guys, but I'm not sorry. Have you had a butter board? Have you tried this? Oh, absolutely. I'm offended you had to ask. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend, but I, I want to, I, I haven't, I haven't tried this yet. So A, what is on this butterboard that you're making? And B, can you send me one? <laughs> Why are you laughing? It, it is, it's not a joke. Um, I think it's a, a fun stat is when we were launching this report just, I think it's been a month and a half ago. There were over 300 million views for the hashtag Butterboard on TikTok. So perhaps you are not one of those views, Corey, but it is taking TikTok and social media absolutely by storm. We've also seen butter candles. People at home are making their own candles made out of butter, lighting it and then dipping their bread, their crackers and things into it. So again, that return to playfulness with food is definitely centered around here. But the Butterboards can get super fun as you look at different types of compound butters brown butter is booming. So you can have it be on more of that sweet side, but you could also take it in more of a heat centric or more savory centric butterboard, depending on what mood you're in for that, for that butterboard of the day. Personally, my favorite is a caramelized onion butterboard. Uh, that one, some toasted bread is just, it will make my day. In my head, I'm picturing myself like sitting by a roaring fire with like just this cutting board of butter <laughs> and, and my butter candle, you know, dipping it. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit too much insight into my home life for you guys. I'm sorry. So 
the other thing I think about when I think of of butter is kind of kind of decadence. Um, I guess would be the word. You know, a higher a higher elevation of flavor by adding butter, which I also associate you know butter and fats with French cooking, which going into your everyday French, like I hear that and it makes me think like French cooking is supposed to be something that's a little bit out of your reach, you know, kind of Julia Child, but, but higher. So, so what is this everyday French we're talking about here? Speaking of which I am French. So I just want to, you know, hear about this everyday French cooking that I don't do. Everyday French was a really fun trend to dive into with our global team. So we have a couple of French members on our team, specifically one of our chefs out in France who was able to contribute to this, but also all of our different global team members really showcasing the French fusions that they were seeing within their regions. And what I love about this one is once you talk about it, once you hear about it, you're not going to stop seeing it on, on menu and within products as you, as you kind of look around. And it's this fusion of elevated French techniques or elevated French ingredients like a truffle, but they're being infused into everyday flavors or other, other fusions. So I think the dish that really stood out to me during our discovery for this trend was we were up in Toronto and we had a truffle fried rice and it was absolutely life-changing. So it's that fusion of something like a truffle, which is traditionally a French ingredient, but you're, you're marrying it with a fried rice, which is not in the same realm, but when you put it together, it's absolutely magical. I mean, that sounds amazing. I love this trend because I didn't realize how much of the food I was eating was French. Um, I completely just didn't realize how much it actually influenced the foods and the flavors that we're eating. I remember when we were putting together this report, there was a specific example that I was like, wow, I can't believe I hadn't thought of this before. And it was a social media post of a grilled peach salad with herbe de Provence on it. And that just sounded so delicious. And I could totally see something like a grilled peach herbe de Provence salad dressing that we could bottle and turn into just this very sweet, but very culinary and delicious salad dressing that could bring that to retail. So we're not talking, you know, making full dishes here. We're not talking like escargot or, you know, any, any kind of thing like that. We're talking like little French changes to the food that we eat. That is definitely so very similar to the full flavored fats trend. There's essentially three different subtrends within everyday French. And that is hitting on these little, these little minor tweaks within everyday dishes is what we call foundational French. So seeing something like a truffle or an herbe de Provence or a lavender being infused into other everyday everyday dishes, but also something like a French taco, like more of like infusing different different fusions. The second, I guess, subtrend here, again, consistent, what we're seeing is like this plant-based French trend going on. And we're seeing that that operators and professional chefs, they are saying that plant-based dishes belong within French gastronomy too. And I can also talk about, you know, when we, I was out in Las Vegas just a couple months ago and I went into a fully vegan restaurant concept and I got a chestnut foie and that it was all about the texture. It was all about that taste, but it was completely plant-based, but it was really that hook was that traditional French dish, that traditional French technique, which I think is, is a really big story here. And then the final, I guess, prong of Everyday French is where, really where we're going to start featuring our food story this year. 
And it's a marry of Asian and French techniques and specifically leaning into the story of Vietnamese Cajun. Now, I'm curious, Veronica, you said a marry of the French and Asian, which was, you know, obviously you spoke about the, the fried rice and so on. So what is this, what is this marrying flavor you're talking about? Is it, you know, you said it's Cajun spices and what else now? Yeah, so this is actually what we are coining as our flavor of the year, which I realize we haven't gotten to yet. But this, it's a complete fusion of flavors. It's Vietnamese Cajun, and it was actually really born out of the southern part of the United States, really out of Houston, and it's migrated around the U.S. and around the globe as well. And as we looked at this flavor, it's really this marriage of Vietnamese and Cajun cultures and and cuisines, both of which have incredible French influence on both of their cooking techniques and into their cultures. And a lot of the reason that these flavors work so well together is because of that French influence on them. All right. Awesome. So we've got one more trend to talk about. We've touched on full flavored fats. We've talked about everyday French. Let's talk about the heat. Let's bring the heat. Let's talk about going beyond heat. Now, we're not talking about like, you know, when Burger King goes beyond. We're not talking about like substituting meat here. We're literally talking about the, not the temperature, but the the spice of flavor. So talk to me about that. Tell me about beyond heat. What is next in spicy? Totally. And very similar to plant-based on the flavor forecast report year over year, we always look at what is next in heat, what's next in spicy. And when we say that we're beyond heat, it's all about going beyond that singular heat source or that singular spicy. It's not a knock your socks off type of spice. This is really where we're leaning into that consumer trend of really having a hunger for more sensorial eating experiences. So with this trend, we're talking about heat in a totally new way. It's not a single Chipotle or Chipotle, if you will. Um, <laughs> where we're really focusing on six different up and coming heat sources that either have an experiential component to it, like maybe it's going to make you sweat a little bit or it's going to make you have a little bit of a buzzing sensation or it's going to have a layered heat experience where you might get a really hot heat, but then you might get a citrus element and then more of a pungent heat all within one within one heat source. So within this trend, we are looking at yuzu koshu, Vietnamese Cajun, mala, which is where you're going to get a little bit of that buzzing, sini sambal, salsa matcha, Salsa matcha is what we see as being the next chili crisp, which we actually forecasted in our 21st edition. And then finally, our Tom Yum soup base um, as that last layered heat experience. I personally love this trend. This is my favorite trend out of the report. I love this trend so much because there's so much to explore here. Within heat, there is all of this opportunity to play with the nuances of flavor. When I think about heat, I actually like to think about it in the same way that you would think about wine, especially when we're looking at applying heat to different types of applications. You need to choose the right type of heat in the same way that you would choose the correct bottle of wine to go with your, your dish. You're going to put a white wine with fish and you're going to put red wine with meat. And you might even get more specific and start putting very distinct regional wines as well, where you might pair a Argentina wine with an Argentina dish. And the same thing is true for heat. And that's what I love about the flavors that we've identified this year, specifically the, the yuzu koshu and just the authenticity that you can get there. And it's all driven from 
selecting the correct heat source. And that is is really coming from the fermented chilies. And fermenting is especially popular in Japanese and in Asian culture. And when we see these fermented chilies being paired with the regional fruit, yuzu, it just comes together in this beautiful way to balance. Um, And being able to use that and pair that with Japanese food is just absolutely delicious. It feels authentic. It feels right. And it just creates a very memorable flavor and aroma because you're also getting so much more than just heat. When we are talking about spicy, that word is not actually interchangeable with heat. They they mean two different things. Um, And that's something that I, I personally am very passionate about because if we just made it super hot, it's not enjoyable. But spicy really is all about flavor and heat. So what do you think wakes up the taste more, the heat or the spice? So if I'm eating something, you know, what is it that about the heat or the spice that's going to make me enjoy it or wake up the flavor on my tongue more? The sensorial experience. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> um, it really comes down to, did it make you sweat? Did it make your nose run? Do you feel a burning in the back of the throat? That's ultimately what's going to wake you up. But it doesn't just have to come from those traditional heat sources like chilies. Um, I think that when we say heat, people start thinking of jalapenos, chipotles, guayo peppers. Like Those are all amazing sources of active heat. But there are all of these wonderful sources of passive heat, things like cinnamon, ginger, those are mustard. Those are also sources of heat. If it causes a sensorial reaction, we consider that to be a heat source. And when you combine all of these different things together with other bold, strong flavors like citrus, um, you can really create a very strong sensorial reaction. Uh, The power of sour, I like to say, uh, where if you take something super sour and something that has a very strong heat source and put that together, you get a very strong sensorial reaction that I think is a lot of fun and is a little bit unique for a lot of consumers. And really, if you're looking for something to wake you up, we'll do the trick. I hope you're writing down these catchphrases. I mean, you better coin these real quick. (laughs) Yeah, and my favorite, you know, and I think this is probably why we're seeing it everywhere, kind of understated, you know, heat uh, source is wasabi. It's that slow burn that kind of gets to the back of your nose and then moves its way forward. I mean, I like a little of it on things. You know, I'm not one of those, you know, I need it like slathered on. But definitely, I, I, I understand now the difference between spice and heat when it comes to, you know, hot and uh, flavor. So let's talk about the future because that's, you know, yes, we're, we're living in 2023, but you guys are apparently in like 2028. So let's wrap this up by asking for your key takeaways. What's next? What's in the future? You know, pun intended, what's hot? I'm going to end with a little bit of the way that we kind of kicked off where I see multisensorial and digital taking more of a role within what flavor means within the eating experience for today's consumer, whether that's a packaged good or or a dish that they're ordering on menu. So I definitely see digital, but multisensorial being what's next and continuing to grow. I see a lot of layered flavors. And I think that this really comes from not choosing to go with just one flavor profile. Don't just go with sour or don't just go with sweet. Really find ways to combine these. And it can be in really unexpected ways. Uh, Something like smoked cinnamon is an amazing way to add layer and depth. I love that flavor in particular, especially in the wintertime. I think it makes a great seasonal flavor. 
that and then something like smoked vanilla is also one that I've got my eye on. And I can I can honestly say you guys are definitely, you know, got your crystal balls out because I think the last time we spoke, we spoke about, is it ube? Is that right? Yes. I mean, everywhere I'm going, I'm seeing it, you know, either like coloring in different things or just mentioned as a, as a significant ingredient within it. So, I mean, you guys, you guys are legit. You're, you're on the map, definitely. So as we always do at the end of the podcast, we try to ask just some off-the-cuff questions that Veronica and Carrie have not seen yet or we haven't talked about yet. I've been coming up with them, you know, basically since we talked yesterday and today right now. So let's talk about your favorite plant-based food, something that's been swapped out that doesn't taste like cardboard that you actually purchase and keep on your shelves as a supplement for what you used to have? Mushrooms, hands down. I feel like you can always find a good mushroom to substitute in for just about any type of animal-based meat. I love that you can really emulate the bounce and the texture of real meat with mushrooms and just the umami flavor that they bring. You completely stole that answer from my head as soon as that question was asked. I know we had mushrooms in our plants pushing boundaries trend a couple of years back, and it's still something that I gravitate towards when I go into a restaurant, whether it's a plant-based restaurant or not, or if I'm in the grocery store and I'm looking, let's say, in the frozen aisle or even just at some of the fresh produce, I gravitate towards if there is a mushroom call out, something like a lobster mushroom, a maitake Anoki is one that I'm obsessed with right now, and you can use it almost to mimic the texture of pasta, and you can you can have that same texture. So I think from a texture standpoint, when you talk about plant-based, mushrooms are continuing to grow. They're just absolutely incredible. But I'll also say, in a different lens, plant-based dressings are something that I am gravitating towards right now. So I just did a, I just bought a bottle of uh, vegan plant-based, so dairy-free, I guess, if you will. Caesar dressing and I can't get enough of it. And it's like, it makes me feel better as I'm eating it, that there's a little bit less dairy in my day. I'll also add lentils. <laughs> so I don't have the same answer. I, I mean, I absolutely love lentils. We have forecasted in a couple of different sessions that I've had with other internal group members, the koshery, which is the national dish of Egypt and was in our flavor forecast last year. And just the lentils in that are so hearty and just feel so like fulfilling that I go to that as my go-to plant-based meal anytime that I feel like I need a break from animal protein. Now, if you guys could just develop a way to get my kids to eat them, that would be great. Thanks. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. I love mushrooms. I do like putting them in my food. Nobody else in my family does. I like watching those videos on the internet, what's safe to eat and what's totally not. And that mushroom that when you cut it changes colors. If you haven't seen that, you should definitely look it up because it's neat. Um, <laughs> all right. So next question, how spicy can you stand? Are you a mild, medium, hot, you know, scorpion pepper? Where are you on that scale? For me, it comes down to what other flavors are in the dish. For me, spicy, I'm not the type of person that wants my, my socks knocked off and to uh, be running for the fridge. But there's actually a lot of nuance that you can have in a dish that changes the same type of, I'm just going to use chili peppers, that if you had like a jalapeno, but it was paired with cheddar, it's going to feel a lot less spicy than if it was just paired with something like citrus. So I, I like about a medium heat level, but I definitely prefer my heat to come with some sort of cooling factor, whether it's 
like a yogurt or a cheese or a milk base? I think for me, I enjoy experiencing new things. So if there's a new product, a new a new condiment, a new menu dish that I want to try that is creeping up on that heat scale, I'm going to try it for that experience, especially if it means that I'm going to be learning something new. But also to wrap this up, you will not catch me volunteering to be on hot ones, just you know, to, to have that as I, I will not do that. Um, but I, I do love spicy. It's more about that experience and, and trying new things, trying new cultural cuisines for me. And I'm going to recommend you guys do a, a hot roulette where you make, <laughs> you know, like three mild, one hot, and then you just spin the wheel and try. I've tried it at home and it's definitely a, a conversation starter. And it also makes people cry um, if you do it right. I, I but will, that's not what we're here for. I will say one of my favorite experiences in the lab was ghost pepper day where we were testing a bunch of ghost pepper samples. And it definitely was a bonding experience as we all collectively uh, kind of went through that experience together and, and trying to figure out what the right levels are. Yeah, One of my first memories here at the company was habanero beer day where they, you know, I was doing my job and I got stopped by uh, Bob Sobel, one of our other podcasters. And then he said, hey, Corey, you want to try some beer? Uh, and I was like, yes, I'm at work. Let's do it. Regardless of all that, that's a great start. That's a great ending. Thank you so much for being here today. That's it for the Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette, and I'd like to thank our special guests, Veronica Collins and Carrie Rock. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>